Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Let us say together a prayer as we hear the word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Ooh. Tough crowd. Good morning. I am pleased to be in your company, gratified for an opportunity again as I follow Skyview Church from where they were on Crow Child to where they were in the school to where they are now, the pilgrim people of God. Thrilled to be with you again and honored because in part of the partnership that Ambrose University has with this congregation to make a difference for God in this city, in this province, in this country, and in this world, I'm pleased to have an opportunity to bring to fellowship with you around the word and to bring the ministry of the word to you on this Sunday morning. One of the questions that inevitably we need to ask, we need to ask it as individuals, we need to ask it as a faith community, Skyview Community Church, we need to ask it as institutions such as Ambrose Institution that has an intentionally Christian identity, is this question, what on earth is God doing? And then the follow-up question, how is God doing it and what implications does it have for you and me? Necessarily, we need to ask this question because for all of us, Few things, in fact, perhaps nothing, should shape, form, and inform our lives as deeply and as thoroughly as that question, what on earth is God up to? Pause for a moment. Is this sound working? All good? Okay, well, you didn't laugh at my joke, so then I didn't know, no, there was no joke. Just checking. I'm new to this sound. And one of the things that intrigues me about the text that has just been read for us and it has intrigued me for all of my adult life and for all of my ministry. The text of Acts chapter 13 verses one through four is that it seems to me that the church in Antioch discerned, they recognized, they saw that the spirit of God was up to something, something different, something new, and they responded to it with courage and grace and with conviction. It is noteworthy, it seems to me, that Acts 13, 1 to 4 comes at what you might call the inflection point in the book of Acts. If you had the whole book of Acts open in front of you right now, a hard copy, so to speak, you would actually begin to almost see that. Acts has 28 chapters. And here at the beginning of chapter 13, just before the halfway point, we have something hugely significant happening. I speak of it as an inflection point in the book of Acts, and it's an inflection point in the mission and purposes of God. Seeing this and feeling the force of it helps us at our time to ask the question, what is God up to in our time? 
The inflection point is this, that in many respects, when you think about the epicenter of what God was doing in the world through the church, up until this point, the epicenter of global mission was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center, the fountain, the pivot on which everything rested. Everything came and went from Jerusalem till the end of chapter 12. At the beginning of chapter 13, this congregation in Antioch has the audacity to recognize, yes I know in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, has the audacity to recognize that something new is on the horizon. Here they are, Paul and Barnabas are not going back to Jerusalem, here they are laying hands on Paul and Barnabas and sending them to do something in Asia Minor, namely the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. Frankly, it's not an overstatement to say. Something that the church in Jerusalem did not see quite yet, did not feel the force of quite yet. The church in Antioch had the capacity to see it. Mission changes fundamentally from this point to having a Gentile focus rather than a Jewish focus. And the church in Antioch set aside Paul and Barnabas for the ministry to which they were called, and now Paul and Barnabas from Antioch go to Asia Minor. By the end of the book of Acts, another shift is underway. And we see it starting in chapters 19, 20, 21, where the apostle Paul is referring not so much to Jerusalem and to Antioch, but to another city, namely Rome. And by the end of the book of Acts, you have it clearly articulated by the Apostle Paul. He's going to Rome because Rome is going to be the new epicenter of global mission. He anticipates going from there to Spain. And what we don't know is how it all quite ended, but we do know this, that for the next centuries, the epicenter of global mission was not Jerusalem, not Antioch, but Rome. And indeed, as somebody who is heir to, I'm not just European in my descent, I'm British in my descent, if it isn't obvious from my name, I'm grateful to Gregory the Great, who from Rome sent the first missionaries to the British Isles. Rome was the epicenter of global mission for the next millennium. Most, if not all, missionaries went forth from Rome, sent from Rome to evangelize the world. By the 16th, 17th century, another major shift happens. When you look at the evangelization of the world in the 17th century, for example, into the 18th century as well, it's not happening primarily from Rome, but rather it is primarily what you might call the Iberian Peninsula, what we know of today as Portugal and Spain. Most of the missionaries who were evangelizing the world in the 17th century were coming from those countries, from what is now the Iberian Peninsula, now Portugal and Spain. And thus, for example, the Dominican order, the Ignatian or the Jesuit order, the, the largest missionary order in the history of the church came from Spain. Some of the great missionary names of those, of those centuries were coming from Spain and Portugal. And yes, I know that they were going with the economic force of the conquistadores, but nevertheless, that's where it was coming from. In the 19th century, another major shift happens. If you know, if you read missionary biographies, if you know of the great missionary characters of the 19th century, where were they coming from? From Italy and Rome? No. From Spain? Not so much. No, they're the Hudson Taylors of the world and the David Livingstons, and they're coming from the British Isles. The vast majority of missionaries in the 19th century were being sent from England, Scotland, Wales, the British Isles. And when you come to the 20th century, another major shift happens. If you look at the 20th century, it is clear that, and the seeds were no doubt planted in the 19th century, including in denominations such as the Church of the Nazarene, 
That is, the seeds were planted there, but in the 20th century, the major missionary sending nations of the world were not the Iberian Peninsula, not, not the British Isles, but the United States and Canada. North America in the 20th century was unequivocally the epicenter of global mission. When my parents went as missionaries to Ecuador in the 1950s, they were part of that great movement of young women and men who were being sent all around the world to be indeed proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. And the vast majority of those churches around the world today were planted by women and men who were sent from churches, congregations, denominations here in North America. My wife and I went as missionaries in the 1980s to the Philippines. But even then, I knew. Joel and I would often comment on it. We would quote Bob Dylan, the greatest poet ever, surely. His wonderful 1964 tune, The Times They Are A-Changing. And I was even then asking the question as a young missionary to the Philippines, are the times a-changing? And if so, what does it mean? In my estimation, but it's not just me, many of us are seeing this. And I'm in conversation with many of my peers and an emerging generation of leaders within the church who are recognizing that we are now at another inflection point. We are now at another turning point in the history of Christian mission. And it behooves us to look at the book of Acts and see what happened in Acts 13, 1 to 4, and to ask then, if we are at such an inflection point, if we are at a point in which the mission of God is shifting, what is happening? And will we, as individuals, as communities of faith, like Skyview Community Church, and like an institution like Ambrose University, Will we have the courage and the discernment to recognize what God is doing and have the courage to embrace what God is doing in our time? In the estimation of many, there are three fundamental changes that are occurring before our eyes, in our lifetime, in the, in the changing character of global mission that it behooves us to see, to recognize, and to respond to with courage. Three, because three-point sermons are the sign of a great sermon. No, I know. Maybe there are more than three, but I've got three for you this morning. Number one. Number one, as significant as anything, the epicenter of global mission is shifting yet again. How do I break it to you gently? Because it's not a matter of ego. It's not a matter that the world centers around us. It's a matter of stepping back and asking the question, where is the epicenter of global mission now? And it's shifting in our lifetimes. It is no longer North America. If you visit Phnom Penh, Cambodia, as I did a few years ago, the vast majority of missionaries that are doing evangelism in Cambodia, where are they coming from? Korea, China, South Asia. The epicenter of global mission is shifting to China, India, Korea, the southern cone, meaning Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. Over the course of our lifetime, overwhelmingly it is the case that those who are leaving their countries, leaving their nations, cross-cultural ministry, are coming from these countries. This is not a problem, this is a recognition of the changing character of global mission. When I was involved, quite intentionally so, in Vietnam, before I came to Ambrose University, probably as significant as anything that I was doing, I felt our involvement in Hanoi and in Vietnam was as significant as anything. One of the things that was often observed is that there were then, and still in many respects still are, 15 unreached people groups in Vietnam. 
And indeed, I don't know whether that language is new to you, but oftentimes, students of mission will ask the question, where are there unreached, people who do not yet know the gospel, where there's no significant community of faith amongst that people group, what does it mean and who's going to reach them? If there are 15 unreached people groups in Vietnam, who's going to reach them? Who will be the missionaries, the evangelists, the church planters who will go amongst these people? Will it be Canadians? Potentially. Will it be Canadians of European descent or of other descents? Potentially. I mean, it's, it's conceivable. Who am I to say? No, the Spirit cannot call a young couple out of the Nazarene church here in Calgary and tell them to go evangelize amongst the highland peoples of Vietnam. Of course, that's possible. But what we were doing in Vietnam was witnessing an emerging generation of Vietnamese lowland, that is Vietnamese of ethnicity descent, who were feeling called to evangelize these 15 people groups. They're not Vietnamese, they're highland people. And what these people are realizing is, what we came to realize is they don't need a visa to get into this country. They already speak the lowland language. The odds are that these are the people that are going to evangelize the highland people of Vietnam. It's not that we won't have a role, it's just that fundamentally now, we're not asking the question, who was going to reach the unreached out of this congregation this morning, but whether what is our role in participating in what God is doing, and it is simply a breathtaking change. To see how the church in Chile, Argentina, and Brazil, and India, and China, and Korea, and I could go further, are embracing indeed what God is doing around the world, and then to ask the question, what is our role in that? On a personal level, this has huge significance for how I invest my time and my energy. Just speaking personally here, but I know it has knock-on implications for the institution of which I'm a part. But I was deeply privileged back in October to speak at a conference of theological educators from around the world gathering in Panama. And over lunch one day, representatives from the Nazarene schools and churches from around the world, Asia, Latin America, Europe, uh, uh, Africa, and myself coming from North America, in a, in a conversation convened by Dan Kopp from the International Board of Education, we were asking the question, how can institutions such as ours partner with those institutions, leverage the resources that we have for those institutions, work with those institutions, because those institutions are playing a simply pivotal role in their regions. That is, if we're going to leverage what God is doing in the world, one of the ways we're going to do it is by partnering with institutions such as that. Those institutions need to flourish if the kingdom purposes of God are going to flourish. Just one such illustration. There are others. But then second, to observe this. There's another significant shift that is happening in our day that in many respects is as significant as anything else that we are observing on the global scene. And I speak of it as an emerging partnership. Going back to Vietnam, there's no doubt, and I don't without any hesitation make reference to the people who were doing significant work in evangelism and church planting in Vietnam. I celebrate their work, I commend them for their gifts and the exercise of their gifts, and I'm keen to walk alongside of them. But kind of surprisingly, I started to have another series of conversations while I was there each time I went into Hanoi, and over a period of time I was going four times a year. And I would have dinner one night with North American academics who were teaching in the university there in Hanoi, in engineering and in business. And on another night, I would meet with business executives from around the world, from Europe, from North America, and from Australia. And clearly, they felt as keenly called to do business in Vietnam as anybody else might have been called to do evangelism and church planting. And then the next night, 
together with a group of emerging media experts and artists and communication people and to begin to recognize this, that in the kingdom purposes of God, God is raising up people in education, the arts, and business. And their work, their calling, is no less significant. No doubt in my upbringing, my father would use the kind of language, bless his heart, that we must be about the Lord's work. And I can't quite say it like my father could say it. For for him, the word Lord was a three-syllable word. I must be about the Lord's work. And when he said the Lord's work, what did he mean? He meant religious work. He meant the work of evangelism and church planting. He wanted to know, if you were a layperson, how active were you in the, in the local church? What you were doing Monday to Friday, I'm sure it was helpful, but what really counted was whether you were active in your local church. That was his phrase. And that was the test of whether or not you were a maturing Christian, if you're active in religious affairs. And if you really love Jesus, you would be a missionary. And if you love Jesus just a little bit less, you would be a pastor. And if you love Jesus somewhat, but not quite that much, well, then you would hopefully be a layperson who was in business making enough money to support those that were doing the Lord's work. The Lord's work was what really counted. But could it be, could it be that God is calling people into business, education, in the arts, into every sphere and sector of society? Could it be that at Ambrose University, where the theology faculty are down one end of the hall and the business faculty are down at the other end of the hall. Could it be that both of those are equally crucial to the kingdom purposes of God in our day? That both those called into business and into theology and ministry, both of them equally are participants in the kingdom purposes of God. I pause there hoping for an amen, but I'll keep going. I realize Nazarenes may not do amens, but press on, Gordon. And that their work is going to be a synergy, a partnership. They're going to be kingdom partners in what God is doing in our world. What What we're seeing is an emerging partnership where when we talk about those who are serving internationally, we have people who are called, yes, into religious work. Yes, into evangelism and church planting. Bless your hearts. And if that is your calling, we are keen to equip and empower you to do precisely that. But God is calling people both locally and globally into business education, and the arts. And their work is kingdom work. And the ways in which they fulfill God's kingdom purposes in, their, in the life of a city such as Calgary, or a province like Alberta, or our country, or our world, are precisely the ways that God is bringing about his kingdom purposes. The inbreaking of the reign of Christ happens not on Sunday morning as the people of God gather, but on Monday morning as the people of God scatter. That is, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God happens not as the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger, now must be the kingdom coming, but rather the kingdom of God is coming when, through worship, through the ministry of the word, through the gathering of God's people, we are equipped and empowered to do what God is calling us to do from Monday to Friday. And the real test of the vitality and effectiveness of a congregation is not its size, but rather its impact. Not its size, but rather or not whether it gets this vision of what God is doing Monday to Friday within communities in Calgary and around the world. I struggle a bit with this because I think the, the residue where we still privilege those who are involved in religious work, where we still privilege those who are involved internationally in religious work, that we still think of them as the highest calling, it's still sometimes in our speaking and we're not seeing, we're not feeling, we're not getting the full force 
of the emerging partnership that is emerging in God's kingdom purposes locally and globally. So we need to say it again and again and again. And then thirdly, we need to also recognize the following, that when we say the times they are changing, our country is changing in fundamental and in radical ways. There's no doubt that when I was a young person, we tended to think, I don't think we fully realized how our country was changing, but we tended to think that this was basically a Christian country. And therefore, from a Christian country, if evangelism is going to happen around the world, Christians from a Christian country are going to go to non-Christian countries in order to proclaim the gospel. Well, the times, if they're not a changing, they have changed and changed fundamentally. As I mentioned, when my parents were missionaries in Ecuador, my parents were missionaries in Ecuador, when we came home on what was then called missionary furlough, the times they have changed there too, we call it different things now. But we would come back to, a, to the city of Belleville, Ontario. My mother was from Belleville, Ontario, and so we would spend the year there living down the street from my grandmother. And we would attend a church in the downtown core of the city of Belleville. That church has, then would, was very committed to missions, and we would regularly pray that God would send missionaries to Saudi Arabia. I don't know why we got Saudi Arabia on our list, but it was on our list. It never happened. Saudi Arabia never let missionaries into that country. Just doesn't, hasn't happened then, isn't happening now. That church has since moved to the suburbs of Belleville, Ontario, and they sold that building. That building is now a mosque. If you visit, if you take the light rail transit from downtown Calgary out to Ambrose University, the last building other than a residence that you see before you go underground to the 69th Street stop is what? It's a mosque. I know that when I was an undergraduate student, there were mosques in Canada. Or was there? I think there was. I don't know where it was. I didn't even know. I assume maybe there's a mosque, but I had no idea where it is. But now if you take number five road in Richmond, B.C., you'll pass a Hindu temple, a Sikh temple, a Buddhist temple, a Muslim mosque, a Jewish study and learning center, and numbers of churches. It's religion row. It's the future of Canada. I spoke at a mission conference last year, pardon me, 18 months ago, so it was 2017, in which the theme song of that mission conference was an old hymn from my youth that went like this, to the regions beyond we must go, we must go. I sat at the back of the room and I thought, we don't get it. We don't get it. No, no, the regions beyond are now just down the street. Canada has changed in fundamental ways. It was Saudi money that bought that building to, make, to create the mosque there in little Belleville, Ontario. This is the new Canada. And we might roll our eyes, maybe you didn't, but I don't know how you felt about watching the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Vancouver a couple of days ago welcoming a young Saudi woman. And I thought, wow, I never get that. When I, when I touch down in Canada, I never get welcomed by the Minister of Foreign Affairs or anybody from the federal cabinet. I, I'm very, whoa, who is this? You know, and I, I know, I know, it's a bit of a photo op for our, our beloved Minister of Foreign Affairs. And yet, you know, don't roll your eyes too often. And yet, in some respects, it represents Canada at its very best. In the resolve that indeed a million immigrants are going to be welcomed to this country over the next number of years. It's almost breathtaking to think of the numbers. Is this something we should celebrate or resist? Because if a million immigrants are coming to Canada over the next number of years, won't it change fundamentally our country? 
Won't it change our way of life? Won't it change the comforts of living in suburban Calgary? Yeah, it will. Is this a good thing? Dare I say these words? It's what God is up to. And thus, indeed, the world is coming to Canada. Canada is becoming increasingly multicultural, multi-religious. And the implications of this are staggering. And the question then becomes, will we, like the church in Antioch, say, what on earth is God up to? And then begin to embrace that. Come back with me to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. What happens here? What does it mean? What significance is there in what happened there that might be significant for us today? First of all, what strikes me, of course, is the courage of the church in Antioch. This was, I don't know if there's a more literary way to put it, but it strikes me as a deeply gutsy move. Wow. Here, the Jerusalem church is going to hear about this. Yeah, I know, we don't have social media, and they didn't kind of check in with the church in Jerusalem. They just did it. Two chapters later, they had to kind of make an account to themselves in chapter 15 because the Jerusalem church was all in a fur because what they were doing in evangelizing the Gentiles. And the Jerusalem church at that point was insisting the only way you can become a Christian is you first become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. But the church in Antioch pushed the boundaries there. They said, we're going to evangelize the Gentiles directly and recognized that they did not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. They did, that is, they acted with courage. They had the courage to do what they recognized the Spirit of God was up to. Secondly, I think what is not to be missed also is that there's an accountability happening here. I'm intrigued that the Apostle Paul, when you look back at his autobiography, at his conversion narrative, at his calling narrative on the road to Damascus, whenever he referenced that, he spoke of it as realizing that Jesus spoke to him in real time directly and called him to evangelize the Gentiles. So in one sense, Paul could just do it. He could just go do it. That's what he was called to do. But it, it seems to me that what he's done here in Acts chapter 13 is he has put this call, his own call, before the church in Antioch and sought their blessing, confirmation, and affirmation. So indeed, it wasn't just anybody. You know, when they, when they were praying together, who should go? It was obvious it was going to be Paul and Barnabas. They were the ones that had been called and commissioned. But Paul put his calling before the Antioch church. He didn't act as a lone ranger. And indeed, two chapters later, Acts 15 needs to go with Acts 13. Paul, having evangelized now Asia Minor with Barnabas, comes back to Jerusalem and makes the compelling, revolutionary uh, argument that indeed the Gentiles are going to be admitted into the reign of God, the community of faith, the church of Christ, on the basis of their faith, not on the basis of whether or not they become Jewish. It is a staggering, staggering move, thanks to the Antiochian church. It changed everything. But Paul was still accountable. That is, I want to stress this. You may have great ideas about what you think the Spirit of God is up to and doing. That's great. But there's a sense in which all of our lives and all of our ministries need to be anchored within the life and witness of the church, a real accountability to the life and witness of the church. And then thirdly, of course, we begin and we end here is asking the question, what on earth is the Spirit of God doing? May God grant us this grace as individuals, personally, 
to be to learn what it means to be attentive to the witness of the Spirit in our hearts, to have a sense of this is how God is calling me. I want to see the big picture of what God is up to, but then ultimately ask the question, Spirit of God, as you rest upon me, as you anoint me, as you witness to my heart, in what ways are you calling me to participate in your kingdom purposes? And then the same thing for Skyview Community Church, to ask collectively as a community of faith, how is God calling us by his spirit to be participants in what God is doing in Calgary, Alberta, and the world? Where and in what ways are we as a community of faith called to be participants in the kingdom purposes of God? And then, as I said, this is a question we ask all the time at Ambrose University. We are not fixed. There's a dynamic. We're not static. There's a fluidness as we're trying to be participants in the kingdom purposes of God and equipping women and men to participate in what God is doing around the world. We are keen to be in conversation with you and with others to ask the question, what on earth is God doing and how can we equip a generation of emerging leaders to participate in God's kingdom purposes? This is not the last word, the changing epicenter of global mission. This is not the last word, the emerging partnership between those called into business and ministry. This is not the last word that indeed now the nations have come to Canada, but it is part of the conversation, and I welcome your participation in that conversation as we seek both individually as faith communities, but then also as a university such as Ambrose to ask the question, what on earth is God doing? May God grant us courage and discernment to do precisely what it is that God is calling us to do. Amen.